0: From my very limited understanding of, sort of simulation research, it seems that there's a fair amount of research suggesting that simulation improves clinical skills and sort of educational outcomes. Is there any sort of literature out there that suggests that it improves patient outcomes? You know, when I started in simulation, well, 15 plus years ago, all of the studies were published around looking at the modality itself and the educational outcomes rather than being, you know, patient focused. But I think that is significantly changing. One of the earliest studies that showed patient outcome was a a paper published by Tim Draycott and his team at North Bristol. And so the prompt, uh, for for those who are not familiar with it, is an intervention or training tool that they introduced around team training around shoulder dystocia. The story behind it goes that at the same time, the neonatal unit was studying the cooling of patients with hypoxic ischemic brain injuries. And at the time, it became apparent that they were having a significant reduction in their recruitment into their trial. And so when the professor, Professor Whitelaw, who was the person at the time who was running it, was speaking to Timmy saying, you know, we're having a significant reduction in the recruitment of these patients. And when they looked at it, there was a significant reduction of these patients with shoulder dystocia after they'd rolled out this um, intervention, if you like, or team training, simulation based team training event. And so a, a direct link between improving patients outcome related to simulation based training. And that's one of the early ones, and one of the ones that makes a very powerful argument for it. But in the same way, you know, one of the things that, if you haven't heard this, I promise you, you will hear this from the simulation skeptics is saying, "Well, you know, why are we, uh, you know, treating these simulated patients? Surely, what we should be doing is just having people have more clinical experience." And the truth is that it's not true because the evidence is out there. So the same group, uh, Bill McGahey and Diane Wayne, looked at the performance of people in resuscitation settings within their organization who were just doing, so there was an adult-based service, and so I guess there's frequent cardiac arrests that occur. And so they looked at people who were performing repeatedly in cardiac arrests across the year versus trainees or or, or the residents, I guess is the terminology in the U.S., that were exposed to three-monthly simulation-based simulation events, where they got deliberate practice and feedback. And so when they looked at these two cohorts in parallel, there was a significant difference. So in other words, they looked at the adherence to the criteria around the resuscitation practice, you know, what's expected. And the, the group that only did clinical practice only adhered to, the, to standard or best practice in 44% of the time, whereas the simulation-based group was 68%. So a significant improvement in their clinical performance because they had simulation and not just clinical practice. In fact, uh, I should just mention on, on that clinical versus simulation-based education, bull McGahey in academic medicine in 2011 published a meta-analysis around simulation-based education and deliberate practice versus clinical practice alone and actually found a comparative effectiveness of 0.7%. So again, 70% improvement in the clinical practice uh, above the clinical practice for the simulation-based group. And then uh, the other thing uh, that I just alluded to that I found fascinating is there is this concept in educational literature called peripheral participation, which actually for us in, in healthcare education has been the way that we've been taught for years. It's this idea of apprenticeship. I watch you performing something but actually, even though I'm not taking part of it, I'm learning some of the culture around that. And I'm learning what you're doing because I'm watching you perform that task. And what Jeff Barusk, who's a member of the same group of Diane Watson and Earl McGay, he found is that as part of this line related infection program that they had running, when residents did it for the first time, they were scored almost like an assessment. What's your skill level? Because they were looking at their performance as they went through this education. And what they found is that in the first score that individuals had, if you like, on that entry exam was 46%. The next cohort who were the observers the year before, the following year, was fifty-five percent the entry mark. On the, the third year that the program was running, the entry mark was seventy percent. And so what they would actually had to do is was adjust. The pass mark, because actually it was constantly going up because this was this, I guess, herd knowledge because people observing the practice that was being implemented was exemplary in every occasion. And so what people were doing was observing exemplary practice every time they observed it, which meant that their knowledge acquisition was much accelerated in comparison to units where it didn't happen. I've only mentioned a few examples, but there's more and more of these papers that are being published that are showing us the evidence for simulation is there. Just a word of caution, in um, Tim Draycott's work that they did, they also showed that when they introduced the program in different units, and I won't name them across the world, in some units it doubled the injury to the patient. And what they looked at is that when they introduced uh, it in those different units, the differences between the units were whether it was a multi-professional team that was trained or not, whether they trained at least 66 or you know, nearly 70% of their staff, and the way that the debriefing was implemented. And so the units where the simulation was ineffective had nothing to do with the modality. It had to do with the way that the modality was implemented. And so I think that's another key message that people should understand. And I always say to people, simulation is a loaded gun. And what I mean by that is it has the ability to do harm if not implemented in a correct way, particularly when it comes to the debriefing. People are emotionally scarred because of the way that they're being debriefed in a non-psychologically safe fashion. Um, I suppose linking into that, Dr. Grant, what do you think the minimal training and requirement is for someone to be able to run a debrief? So I often say the best debriefers I've come across in the world are not necessarily people with masters in education the key to be a good debriefer can be summarized in personal characteristics. is a curiosity, empathy, and having the learner's best interest at heart. There's this wonderful old paper now that's been published for years now that talks about a sage on the stage versus a guide on the side. Certainly in my learning career, I was often taught by people where it felt like the purpose of them teaching was to show me how clever they were. And so it was, in many ways, a humiliating experience because it showed my flaws and faults in a non-empathetic way, which, you know, I guess it's a way of teaching. But actually, when taught by somebody who their purpose is to help the learner optimize their growth and future performance, that comes from those qualities rather than assuming that people didn't do something because they didn't know, but there may have been something else that impeded their performance and helping them understand that so that next time they could perform better. So those personal qualities then coupled with having a structure to debriefing and understanding at least the debriefing methodology without necessarily having an educational qualification, I think, is the key. So I would say the answer to your question is, no, you don't need an educational qualification, but you do need to be trained in how to debrief the learners effectively. And actually, I think with anything that we learn in life, there's a natural learning curve. And for me, when I started, I guess I focused predominantly on teaching technical skills, if you like. And so debriefing, those aspects are very different from human factors and teamwork or crisis resource management type things where you're training teams and you're using techniques that use advocacy inquiry and facilitating reflection in that way. And so I think There's almost a graduated way in terms of helping people develop as educators and simulation debriefers. And and so in our development program, that supports people along that pathway. Because the other value comes from the fact if you standardize the way that you debrief, it helps educators support each other. And there are lots of resources out there. We use iTrust, which is a blended debriefing methodology that uses. So I always describe it as a tool belt with tools on it. So the tool belt being that the structure of the debrief is standardized, but the tools that you use to deliver the feedback differs depending on the situation and it's not predefined. And we expect the educators to identify the tool required together with the learners as they go through the debriefing. Similar debriefing methodologies that you may have come across as polls, which also uses a blended approach uh, similar to ours. The importance of the structure is that when you start debriefing, it's like anything. The cognitive load to the debriefer is incredibly high because you're trying to analyze how do I debrief this at the same time as you're trying to analyze the learner's needs in the conversation with them. And so therefore having a standardized structure is one of the ways to reduce the cognitive load to the person facilitating the debriefing. One of the people I spoke to said the ability to debrief in a simulation is, is is much better and he's found that difficult in the actual hospital environment in a simulation centre. You can have designated, very experienced people that can debrief effectively. How have you worked debriefing into point of care simulation? So here's the problem. Before we adopted our approach, we have twelve thousand individuals in our organisation. Year on year, when we'd only delivered simulation based education in the SIM center. We managed to touch, if you like, or educational experiences for member of staff less than 15% of the organization. And so my point is having a fantastic simulation center, unless you have hundreds of facilitators and a center that's about as large as your hospital, your chances of actually saturating or or having meaningful experiences for at least 70% of your staff is almost zero. And so it's about scalability. So our approach has been a hub-and-spoke model. So, for example, we have the paediatric simulation program and the adult simulation program, and they have leadership and educators attached to that. Their role is to act in a hub-and-spoke manner. Each department has a group of individuals who have been trained to be experts in delivering simulation and simulation-based education. And so the role of the simulation, pediatric simulation program is to educate each of these hubs, if you like, or the group of educators within that hub and do faculty development and supporting them in the delivery. But because we decentralize the delivery into these hubs, we're able to now reach a much higher percentage. I would lie if I said we're up to what I'm aiming to get to 70%, but we're much closer. We're above 50% of our population per annum. So we've managed to scale up the amount of people that we can expose to, to meaningful simulation-based educational events by decentralizing it. What Paul said about the difficulty of debriefing in a clinical environment, he's absolutely right. It takes planning, but that's where the simulation program comes in because that's their role. So they have an entire performer or setup that we go through every time we run a simulation in the clinical environment because it comes with its own inherent risks. So um, making sure that Switchboard knows that the calls that are going out are related to a simulation-based event, making sure that the acute leadership across the hospital are aware that it's happening. Because the last thing I want is for somebody to manage a simulated patient when there's a clinical emergency happening at the same time. And so part of what that team does is making sure that we have spaces and time allocated for that simulation event. So for us, our friends have been cubicles. Having the simulation debriefing in a cubicle at least gives it that little bit of privacy so it's not in the middle of a ward. So I think, though more challenging, the benefits of delivering it in point of care because of the fact that you're able to reach more staff, I think outweighs that by far. I think simulation centers will always have a role because some educational events are difficult to run in a point of care setting. But I think if you have limited resources, given the the impact factor of what you're delivering, pointed care simulation has a far higher potential impact. So there's a lot of sort of interest and talk about the future of simulation and things like virtual reality. Given your sort of vast amount of experience in simulation, I'm interested to see what your point of view is and where you see simulation going in the next, say, 30, 40 years the moment i guess in my people's perceptions when you say simulation to somebody their first perception is oh that's the thing with the plastic dolls and my first comment would be it's so much more than that it's about the whole methodology understanding how you create an experiential learning event for people to reflect on that builds on their learning practice and i think that's why in the future uh, simulation based education will change not in the way that we deliver it, meaning the educational theories that underpin it, the debriefing uh, methodologies, all of those things, but actually in terms of the interface for the learner. And I think one of the failures of simulation at the moment is that often when it's delivered, when people are interacting with the patients, it's a, with well, the best will in the world, a mannequin simulated patient that's there that doesn't interact, but doesn't have the emotional interactions and that's often why people struggle is that they, they can't build that connection with a patient as they would in the simulated environment. And I think as we move forward, the actual architecture of the mannequins will change dramatically in, in a way that almost with virtual reality and augmented reality, what the mannequin looks like almost become inconsequential because what we will see because of technologies like Google Glass is a patient that we're interacting with and the mannequin really becoming the tool that allows us to perform the procedures that we would in a real clinical environment. So I think that interface will change significantly in the years to come.